AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you all the latest mental health related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is the show where you will hear about all of that without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the benefit of more than 20 years of practice in psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it and better educating the general public about mental illness. And welcome back to the show. This is the Wednesday, May 21st edition of Psychiatry Today. Appreciate your listening in and especially to those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for your support. As always, uh, there seems to be a lot to talk about that relates to mental health, and this week is no exception. Uh, But first up on tonight's show, over the last several years, there have been so many mass murders committed by people who have mental health problems, and a lot of hand-wringing and discussion about how to handle the violent mentally ill and also a lot of discussion as to whether indeed the mentally ill are more prone to violence or not. Uh, In fact, they are not. In fact, the mentally ill are much more likely to be a victim of violence as opposed to becoming violent. Uh, And now we have Uh, a study showing something that may mitigate the risk of violence among the mentally ill. But as we'll see later, what the study leaves unanswered is how to implement the intervention that seems to be effective without the cooperation of patients and families. The study found that medications reduce the risk of violence among the mentally ill. Mentally ill people are substantially less likely to commit a violent crime if they are taking psychiatric medication. And this comes to us from a large new study of the mentally ill done in Sweden. The study was published in the journal The Lancet, and it comes amid persistent concern about the connection between violence and mental illness as I said, fueled by high-profile mass shootings and crimes committed by people diagnosed with psychiatric disorders. Many mental health experts say the connection between violence and mental illness is overblown in the public mind, and that previous evidence suggests that people with severe mental illness do have an elevated risk of violent behavior compared with the general population, but particularly when they are untreated or are engaged in substance abuse. But there has been limited research on the question of whether taking psychiatric medication helps to reduce violence. At the same time, some mental health experts express concerns about the side effects of heavy-duty psychiatric medications relative to their benefit. 
Antipsychotic drugs are used to treat schizophrenia and other severe mental illness in which individuals lose touch with reality. Mood stabilizers are prescribed for those with conditions including bipolar disorder. The new study suggests that such medicines appear to have the benefit of damping violent behavior. Only a minority of patients perpetrate crimes, but even in this minority, it may be to a large extent a modifiable risk. Researchers from Oxford and the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm used Swedish national registries, which make it very easy to conduct medical research, to examine more than 80,000 people who were prescribed antipsychotics or mood stabilizers from 2006 to 2009, as well as their psychiatric diagnoses and criminal convictions during the same period. They found a significant 45% drop in convictions for violent crime, such as homicide, assault, robbery, or any sexual offense during periods when the individuals were thought to be taking their medications based on prescription and dispensing records, regardless of their diagnosis, compared with when they were off their medications. Patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder exhibited a 24% decrease in convictions when taking mood stabilizers the overall rate of violent crime convictions for men prescribed the drugs was 6.5% during the period and 1.4% for women. Previous research has shown a four- to six-fold increase in violence among men with severe mental illness compared to the general population. The study couldn't determine why the medications reduced violent crimes, but it could be that drugs treated the psychosis itself. By reducing paranoia, for example, and also provided broader benefits, such as decreasing impulsivity. In, in addition, there are questions about whether the results are generalized to other populations outside Sweden. The rates of psychiatric drug use and assaults recorded by the police are similar to those in the United States. The principal difference, in my opinion, is that in Sweden, local governments and health care providers have very active and aggressive outreach programs uh, to treat the mentally ill in the community and mobile crisis teams, providers who will go to patients' homes to ensure compliance with treatment. Uh, that's the exception in the United States compared to in Sweden. Crime and violence are influenced by many factors, and people with mental illness who perpetrate crimes aren't typical of the mentally ill or of criminals. Violence and mental illness are two important and complicated but different public health problems that intersect on their edges. Well, the study makes an important point, and in some ways it's not surprising that if the mentally ill 
are on medications, they're going to be doing better. They're going to be less prone to violence, whether that's against others or against themselves. But as I said before I reviewed the article with you, it doesn't answer the question, well, how do you ensure that these people are going to be taking your medications? Uh, there has to be more community outreach to make it easier for patients and families. And I say for families because there are many families who struggle to get their loved one to accept their mental health diagnosis, accept treatment, including medications. And the tragedy of these mass shootings by the mentally ill is that in most cases there was no treatment going on. Uh, in this country, the mental health laws by necessity and by rights err on the side of preserving human rights. It is very, very difficult to force someone into mental health treatment. Uh, but clearly there have been some cases where if there was more community outreach, if a patient's families had more leverage, uh, that they could have ensured the patients got some treatment, including medication, um, even if they weren't necessarily cooperative with treatment. You may not hear of it very often, but there is such a thing as outpatient commitment. Most of the time when we think of involuntary commitment to psychiatric treatment, we're thinking of a psychiatric hospital. And that is very often the case. What happens if someone is adjudicated in a court of law to be mentally ill and in need of treatment that they are refusing? However, there is also such a thing as outpatient commitment. And in some cases, this could include mandatory attendance at outpatient clinics for treatment. Um, it could even at times include mandatory medication. Uh, the mental health workers would, in some cases, come to the patient's home to administer the medications and watch them take them in front of them. And if this sounds like some sort of police state or something, well, I know it sounds harsh, but if you have someone who's adjudicated to be mentally ill and dangerous and they don't otherwise cooperate with treatment, then this is a way of making sure that they are not going to commit any more crimes uh, or act out violently because of their untreated mental illness. There is other precedence for this type of supervised treatment in public health. For example, uh, patients with multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis who are found not to be cooperative and compliant with treatment will end up in this type of mandated care where uh, a health department worker will come to their home and observe them taking their anti-tuberculosis antibiotics. So again, this is not without precedence for other non-psychiatric diseases in the public health system. The issue is it certainly is not at all clear that the public health system in the United States, from uh, the local jurisdictions, uh, cities, towns, counties, states, 
are they going to get into the business of mandating mental health treatment in this way? Are they going to invest the resources, the time, the effort, the personnel to do this in the service of keeping the mentally ill on their medication in order to prevent violence? Do they see this as a worthy investment of those resources? I certainly think that it would. And as I described to you, it certainly works in Sweden. It certainly could work here if uh, the, the will were there, the money, the resources, and that it were not seen as some sort of government intrusion into personal rights. Uh, that's certainly at the heart of the matter. All right, well, we're going to take a commercial break at this point. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. Followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listing to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here on America's Web Radio. Next up on tonight's show. <clears throat> this article has gotten a lot of attention uh, because of a very surprising finding. The article is about a study that shows that Victims of bullying show increased evidence of inflammation in their blood. And conversely, that bullies have lower rates of inflammation. Now, this obviously stirred up a lot of controversy, a lot of feelings. So uh, what are the researchers saying? That, uh, that it's healthier to be a bully than not to be a bully? Well, that's certainly 
sounds strange, doesn't it? I mean, you uh, you heard them coming out and saying, of course, we do not recommend or condone bullying. They're just observing the facts. Uh, so let's take a closer look at this and see what really is going on and, and what we can glean from the information that was reported about the study or not. Uh, researchers already know that many kids who were bullied appear to suffer socially, psychologically, and physically for years afterwards. But according to this new study, the physical consequences might be explained by an increase in low-grade inflammation throughout the body. Kids who are bullied tend to be sick more often than their peers and may have stomach aches, sleep problems, and headaches and lose their appetites. Uh, researchers wrote in the journal PNAS. Now, in this new study, bullied kids had higher inflammation levels as young adults than their uninvolved classmates. And this inflammation might explain the connection between bullying and the negative impact on physical health because an increase in inflammation could lead to health problems like heart disease, for example, down the line later in life. The authors followed 1,420 kids from age 9 to 21, interviewing the kids and their mothers along the way about bullying involvement and taking blood samples from the kids every year or two. They measured the level of something called C-reactive protein. This is a marker often used to gauge body-wide inflammation levels in the blood. The marker can be affected by any number of stressors or changes in the environment, like lack of sleep or psychological pro problems. C-reactive protein levels went up for all kids as they got older, but kids who had been repeatedly bullied saw more of an increase in this inflammation-indicating marker in their blood as opposed to a group that was not involved at all in bullying. The more often kids reported being bullied, the more the inflammation marker increased over time. It has been known for a number of years that a variety of early life traumas, ranging from sexual and physical abuse to mental abuse and neglect, lead to a variety of bad health outcomes in just about every area of health that you want to measure. One of the common denominators in many ills like cancer and heart disease is inflammation. The idea that having very distressing and negative life events leads to inflammation has been what we are beginning to think may be the link between bad events early in life and bad health outcomes later in life. The elevated levels of C-reactive protein in victims of bullying indicate they might have a three- to four-fold increased risk of developing heart disease or diabetes. But to know that connection is definitely going to pan out, researchers would have to wait 
until the subjects entered their 40s or 50s. <clears throat> now, this is the controversial point. The study also found that kids who were bullies but were never bullied themselves had less of an increase in inflammation over time than the, than the group of kids who were not involved in bullying in any way. This is the controversial point, that somehow being a bully protects you against the inflammation. Now, needless to say, this is a very, very difficult finding for the researchers to work with and deal with. How do you confront that? Uh, and how do you explain that? Again, they're coming out and saying, no, this does not mean that bullying will protect you against inflammation. But that is remarkable, again, that the bullies who were not bullied themselves had less inflammation than kids who had no involvement with bullying whatsoever. In other words, the kids who were neither bullies nor bullied. Now, I think I have an idea of why this is the case. It was not mentioned in the article, but it seems fairly obvious to me that perhaps one of the keys to being a bully is that there is something inherently wrong with the immune reactions that normally trigger inflammation in the body. And, you know, who can say whether that has a direct connection with the bullying or not, and if there is a connection, how? But what if there is a connection between not having the normal immune reactions that trigger inflammation in the body and being a bully, being prone to bullying behavior? Uh, is it somehow going to make it easier to decide to mistreat someone if the act of bullying would not trigger the inflammatory reactions that would uh, in turn trigger negative feedback from the body or indeed that would trigger illness. I'm not sure if they looked at it or not. I think they should have. Well, kids with the highest levels of inflammation were not surprisingly the ones who had experienced bullying repeatedly over a long period of time or in multiple settings. Parents and caretakers need to deal with the potential long-term effects of bullying only after stopping the bullying from taking place in, in the beginning. The obvious answer for all of this is to prevent it from happening, and that's a difficult goal even with the many comprehensive anti-bullying campaigns in effect in schools. You cannot treat the child with increased signs of inflammation and try to uh, address that and try to stave off long-term health consequences without getting them out of the traumatic experience first. But again, as to the very disturbing finding that those who bully without being bullied themselves have the least inflammation of all the kids, even those who have no connection to bullying whatsoever, is to look at whether there is some sort of malfunction in their immune system such that they can engage in very 
other destructive behavior, if you will, without triggering any immune reaction and therefore uh, not showing any elevations of markers such as C-reactive protein. Now, let's turn our attention not to uh, bullying now, but arguing. We just talked about how one sort of abusive behavior can result in inflammation and illness, and uh, that is in children who are bullied. But this next article I'm going to tell you about has to do with adults and how frequent arguments might be the death of you. It turns out that arguing and worrying over family problems may lead to an increased risk of dying in middle age. This, according to Danish researchers, conflicts with family, friends, and neighbors posed the greatest risk. Those most at risk are men and people out of work. Stressful social uh, relations in private life are associated with a two to three times increased risk of dying. Worries and demands from partners and children and conflicts in general seem to be the most important risk factors. These findings still held when chronic disease, depressive symptoms, age, sex, marital status, support from social relations, and social and economic position were taken into account. Men and participants outside the labor force are especially vulnerable to the exposure to stress from social relations. While we've long known the protective role that healthy social relations play, the results of this study suggest that social relations are actually more like a double-edged sword, as they can also be destructive when they are unhealthy. This report was published in the online edition on May the 8th of the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. And for the study, researchers collected data on nearly 10,000 men and women between the ages of 36 to 52 who took part in the Danish longitudinal study on work, unemployment, and health. Again, the Scandinavian countries have these wonderful and very, very detailed and comprehensive and thorough health registries, making it easy to do medical research. Participants were asked about their everyday social relationships, particularly about who among partners, children, other relatives, friends, and neighbors made excess demands, prompted worries, or were a source of conflict, and how often these problems arose. They also examined whether having a job made a difference. Using data from the Danish Cause of Death Registry, researchers tracked participants from 2000 to the end of 2011. And I think what we'll do is we'll save the findings and go over them for after our next commercial break because we're coming up on that. And so please join me for the results of that study on how arguing might be the death of you. 
uh, and more mental health-related news, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. Followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist here on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. We're talking about a study done in Denmark showing that frequent arguments and social conflicts may kill you. Again, the uh, participants were tracked for 11 years from 2000 to 2011. Now, this is what they found. Over that time, 196 women, or 4% of the women, and 225 men, or 6%, died. Nearly half of the deaths were from cancer, heart disease, stroke, liver disease, accidents, and suicide accounted for the rest. About 1 in 10 said that their children were a frequent source of excess demands and worries. 9% 
said that their spouse was often a source of demands or concern. 6% cited problems among their relatives, and 2% had issues with friends. Some 6% of participants said they always or often had conflicts with their spouse or children. 2% had such conflicts with other relatives, and 1% with friends or neighbors. Taking all of this into account, the research team calculated that these stresses were linked to a 50% to 100% increased risk of death from any cause. Among all these stresses, arguing was the most harmful. Frequent arguments with partners, relatives, friends, or neighbors were associated with a doubling to tripling in the risk of death from any cause compared with those who said these incidents were rare. When stressors were increased, for example, conflict at home coupled with unemployment, the risk of premature death also rose. Higher levels of stress hormones and increased blood pressure are possible reasons for the connections they found. The interactions between stressful social situations and the body's stress response, as well as other factors such as genetics, environment, socioeconomic factors, and psychological responses, likely all play a role in the association between conflicts and a higher risk of death. Learning to deal with conflict and stress might be helpful. Skills in handling worries and demands from close social relations, as well as conflict management within couples and families, may be considered important strategies for reducing these premature deaths. Easier said than done, as it would take the person being able to have the self-awareness to realize that these conflicts and stresses uh, were an issue in their life. So the first step is to identify the problem. The next step is to get help for it. Uh, many people are strongly stigmatized against getting counseling for mental health problems. And even if they decided they wanted to get it, it's often the case that insurance companies will give scant, if any, uh, coverage for counseling. Nonetheless, it is important that research like this continues and points out the inherent dangers in very stressful social relationships, uh, including marital uh, and children and uh, outside <clears throat> social relationships uh, with family and friends. Next up on Psychiatry Today. In previous shows, I've talked about the findings of serious health problems associated with sedatives and sleeping pills and the increased risk of death associated with using sedatives and sleeping pills. And here we have yet another article, uh, another warning the Food and Drug Administration uh, has made about a very popular sleeping pill. It's called Lunesta. Uh, you may have tried it yourself. You may know people who have tried it. You may know people who take it every single night and can't sleep without it. 
And sadly, those people have been turned into addicts uh, by their physicians. But in any case, the news is that some users of this popular sleep medicine, Lunesta, remain too drowsy for safety during the day. And the recommended starting dose for the medication should be lowered. This was announced by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, last Thursday. In a statement, the agency said it took the action to issue this statement because of studies showing that levels of Lunesta in some patients may remain high enough in the morning to interfere with driving and other activities that require them to be mentally alert, thus causing serious safety concerns. This impairment can occur even if patients feel fully awake. There was a statement from Dr. Ellis Unger, the director of the Office of Drug Evaluation in the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, uh, was quoted in the FDA news release as saying, to help ensure patient safety, healthcare professionals should prescribe and patients should take the lowest dose of a sleep medicine that effectively treats their insomnia. Now, the recommended starting dose of Lunesta, which is supposed to be taken at bedtime, obviously, has been reduced from starting at 2 milligrams to 1 milligram for both men and women, which means that there will be less of the drug that will remain in the body by the next morning. Now, the dose can be increased to 2 or 3 milligrams if needed, but those higher doses are more likely to reduce alertness the next morning. The FDA advised that patients who are currently taking the 2 or 3 milligram doses of Lunesta discuss the issue with their doctor and decide on how to keep taking the drug safely and at a dose that best suits them. One of the studies cited by the FDA included 91 healthy adults aged 25 to 40. So this is a very young population, and it found that the currently recommended doses of Lunesta could hamper their driving skills, memory, and coordination for as long as 11 hours after taking the drug. Obviously, that's too long. These drugs are intended to keep you asleep for eight hours and then wear off, or quite honestly, really just to help you get off to sleep and wear off well before you've gotten eight hours of sleep. Now, um, despite these effects of the long-lasting effect of the drug, patients often didn't realize that they were impaired by it. They felt fully awake and they weren't aware that the Lunesta was still having an effect on them. Prescribing information on Lunesta's label will be changed, and the same changes must be made to the labels of generic versions, and the FDA also wants doctors to caution patients taking Lunesta about the risk of impaired alertness the next morning. 
And the FDA did note that next-day drowsiness is a common side effect of all insomnia drugs, not just Lunesta. In 2013, the agency ordered a dose reduction for both Ambien and Ambien CR for similar reasons, especially in women who are more sensitive to its effects. Well, again, it's just another uh, of the rapidly accumulating warnings and precautions about these sleeping pills. And uh, I think that really for safety's sake, they should be taken off of the market. And we need to just completely change our approach to treating insomnia instead of giving patients these very, very addictive and dangerous sleeping pills that can impair concentration, thinking, and memory, and literally increase their risk of death. Uh, we need to go with safer treatments, uh, <clears throat> even a form of counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has been proven to be more effective in the long term than taking medication to aid sleep. If you or someone you know is taking Lunesta, be aware of this information. At the very least, cut back to the lowest possible effective dose, but better yet, try to get yourself off of it. Although, that's probably going to be difficult. Um, in my experience, it takes patients months for their sleep to readapt to um, being able to sleep without the aid of these sleep drugs like Nesta and Ambien. But it can be done. Now, uh, next up on psychiatry today. Kids with ADHD who take medication for it are less likely to wind up becoming cigarette smokers. Now, ADHD or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder um, is a disorder that is uh, supposed to be diagnosed initially in childhood or adolescence, but as we know, often persists on into adulthood. And there's a lot of controversies about it. Uh, some people foolishly don't even think there is any such illness, even though it's well documented and proven through decades of scientific research, and that it causes a great deal of disability and impairment in many areas of life, uh, but nonetheless, some people just dismiss it as um, defective parenting or teaching. And furthermore, the idea of treating ADHD with the current medications, which are mostly stimulants, amphetamine-like drugs, uh, raises the concern that, wow, you're giving these kids with this disorder a very powerful, very addictive medication isn't that going to increase their risk of substance abuse and or dependence? Well, because the brain of someone with ADHD does not respond to these medications in the same way that the brain of someone who doesn't have ADHD responds, people who take the drugs do not become dependent or addicted to them. And uh, instead, they help them function. So all of that is background for this study, the latest in a series showing the decreased risk of substance abuse in kids who take ADHD medication. But we'll go over that in detail after our next commercial break, which we're going to take right now. 
You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening welcome back to psychiatry today the show where you get all the latest mental health related news from yours truly dr scott bay psychiatrist here on america's web radio and now as it was introduced before the break a study showing that medications can lower the odds that kids with adhd will smoke Children taking medications to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, uh, medications such as Adderall, Ritalin, Focalin, and Vyvanse, are less likely to smoke, according to a new study. Kids with ADHD who were treated with these stimulant medications were about half as likely to smoke as children with this disorder who weren't treated with these medications. So it's certainly not a guarantee they're not going to smoke, but certainly decreasing by half is quite significant. The study was funded by the United States National Institute on Drug Abuse, so this had absolutely nothing to do with the pharmaceutical industry. It was published online May the 12th, and in the June print issue of the journal Pediatrics. About 11% of American children aged 4 to 17 have a diagnosis of ADHD. That, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Children with ADHD can be impulsive, have trouble concentrating, and may have other behavior problems. About 70% to 80% of children respond to stimulant medication, according to the CDC. Behavior therapy can also help. Experts have long known that children with ADHD have a higher risk of starting to smoke cigarettes. Teens with ADHD are two to three times more likely to smoke cigarettes than their friends who don't have the diagnosis. But research on the effects of ADHD stimulant medicine on the risk of smoking has been conflicting. To try to better answer the question of whether or not these medications could help prevent kids from smoking, researchers at Duke reanalyzed the results of 14 studies of cigarette smoking and ADHD treatments. The studies included more than 2,300 children with ADHD. About 1,400 of the kids were being treated with stimulant medications. The studies were published between 1980 and 2013. The average follow-up time 
was about seven years. In other words, that's how long they followed these kids from the beginning to the end of the study on average. The researchers compared the teens treated with stimulants to those who weren't to see which group was more likely to smoke. Overall, those on medications were, as I said before, about half as likely to smoke as those who were not on the medications. Those who took their medication consistently and for a longer period of time had an even lower risk of smoking. The data overwhelmingly showed that medications appear to decrease the risk of smoking. Like all medications, ADHD medicines have side effects. This analysis showed a slight effect on growth. However, that finding must be weighed against the many positive long-term benefits. Researchers can't say, based on this study alone, that the treatment caused the lower rate of smoking, but they nonetheless did find this association. One potential reason the medication might have an effect is that both nicotine and the stimulant medications used to treat ADHD operate on the same pathways in the brain. That is the norepinephrine pathway and the dopamine pathway. And both nicotine and the stimulant medications improve the same processes that are disrupted in ADHD. Kids who have ADHD know that something is not quite right. They try to self-medicate. The cigarettes would be an example of self-medication with nicotine. And as a result, children with ADHD have a much higher risk in general of turning to cigarettes and even pot or illicit drugs in an attempt to self-medicate their symptoms. What the study shows, similar to previous research, is that successful treatment of ADHD with stimulant medication decreases the risk of self-medication in these children. And while stimulant medications do have several possible side effects, most kids are able to tolerate the medication. I would say the more common difficulties that kids and their parents and doctors who prescribe the medications have in terms of side effects is decreased appetite and sleep problems. And uh, I often observe that my child psychiatry colleagues will have to sometimes chase after these side effects with other medications. So at times it can be complicated, but nonetheless, if a kid's symptoms of ADHD are causing them to not achieve their full potential in school and severely disrupting the home environment, uh, it can be well worth taking the medications and adjusting the treatment to account for side effects especially now when you look at the improvement uh, in decreasing the risk of smoking. Now let's turn our attention for the next topic on the show to an older group of people. Uh, here it is mid-May, or late May actually, and so it is graduation season. Uh, many of you have already attended commencement ceremonies, uh, perhaps for yourself, 
uh, perhaps for your children, perhaps for your grandchildren. And so let's take a look at issues relating to mental health in uh, the college graduate demographic. So this article is seven ways to recognize de depression in 20-somethings. So whether they are stressing out over landing a job or finding a mate or repaying student loans, 20-somethings have plenty on their plate that could bring their mood down. Although the 20s are typically considered the years of exploration and having fun, depression in young adults is not uncommon. Young adults are saying goodbye to childhood and adolescence and trying to make their own way while dealing with frequent change and uncertainty, which could trigger feelings of sadness and irritability. Going off into the world, establishing a clear identity, developing a capacity for intimate relationships, and forming a foundation to build a future career in adult life are all part of the challenges to people in their 20s that could make them vulnerable to depression. What's more, those in their early 20s are dealing with these challenges before their brain is fully mature. The prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain involved in reasoning and controlling impulses, doesn't finish developing until about age 25. Most people who have a genetic vulnerability to depression typically experience their first episode of the condition between ages 14 and 24. To determine whether a 20-something might be depressed, here are some common signs and symptoms to watch out for in this age group. The first one is a lack of enjoyment. Losing interest in one's pleasurable activities is a telltale sign of depression in any age group. People in their 20s might still go out with friends, but they may not enjoy themselves or have fun. Or they may isolate themselves and be less sociable, withdrawing from their peers and spending more time alone. Lack of enjoyment is really at the core of any diagnosis of depression in any age group. The next one is low energy. People with depression feel hopeless, and with the loss of hope often comes a lack of motivation. Feeling persistently down seems to drain energy and increase fatigue, making it harder to get out of bed or to keep up with usual activities. And certainly 20-somethings, for the most part, you would expect to be young and healthy and energetic. Another sign is reduced concentration. A mind filled with negative thoughts and a pessimistic outlook could lack focus and be indecisive during a stage in life when people are faced with important choices about careers, potentially moving to a new city, trying to gain financial independence, and pursuing romantic relationships. Poor concentration and inattentiveness while in college, on the job, or in the military can further erode self-esteem. Another sign is early morning awakenings. Depressed 20-somethings may find themselves frequently waking up at 4 or 5 in the morning, unable to fall back asleep.
people with depression may have abnormalities in the levels of cortisol, a stress hormone. Young adults with depression often have higher levels in the morning, in the early morning, which disrupts sleep. Another sign is increased alcohol consumption or use of other drugs. To ease the pain and loneliness of depression, some young adults may turn to these substances to escape or numb their pain. Having a close confidant, whether it's a friend or life partner, can help in recognizing a problem and doing something about it. A decreased interest in sex is another sign. During a time when others may be frequently hooking up or looking to settle down, someone with depression may have less interest in sex or a reduced sex drive. And then there are weight changes. People with depression can have a shift in their weight in either direction. Some people lose weight because they lose their appetite and have less interest in eating, but others put on pounds using food as a form of self-comfort. For parents of young adults, seeing their child struggle with depression is a challenge for them too. Parents should shift their role from managing their kids when they are 18 or 20 to becoming consultants starting at age 21 and beyond, being available to provide a young person with guidance and support, but not being harshly judgmental or too prescriptive so as to avoid alienating them. Parents need to remember that young adults need to have the capacity to make decisions on their own and also to emphasize for 20-somethings depression is a treatable illness. Well, I've got to wrap up tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoy the information that I've enjoyed bringing to you. And I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. And thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.